I'm Rob Hirschfeld, CEO and co-founder of RackN and your host for the Cloud 2030 podcast. This episode discusses orchestration, workflow, automation, and the reconciler pattern. Uh, some pretty heady topics uh, for deep tech. And we do this in specific context around Terraform and the pattern of Terraform automation and orchestration systems, or tacos as we call them, uh, in the call. And we really dig in to the challenges around building reliable automation at scale for infrastructure. And how do you test it? How do you make sure that it's working? How do you check it against drift? Um, these are real topics of operational concern for anybody building any type of infrastructure. So super important. Uh, and this conversation was really actionable. So I know you will enjoy it. We've been talking about Terraform orchestration and GitOps and the intersection. Yeah, yeah it's definitely, uh, definitely an interesting place. Um, and, and like I know for me, orchestration has always been one of those really interesting things, especially for those that don't have a depth of experience in understanding that the nuance that orchestration brings over and above just automation. Interesting. I would, you're, you're mirroring a conversation. I would love to hear that, that we were having internally this morning. I would love to hear what you, what your distinguishing factor is and, and the coexistence. Cause I, 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 we had a lot of thoughts here too. Yeah. So typically for me, I, I, I try to boil it down very simply to the idea of automation being the, the execution of a specific task. Mm -hmm. Whereas when I start to talk about orchestration, I need to facilitate the, the handoff and the movement between multiple tasks, um, which could be a, of the same types from a, an automation tool perspective or various different types. And then that brings in the, the additional level of logic at a higher layer. And certainly you can get into some of the nuance of, well, does orchestration have to involve multiple systems, uh, which isn't necessarily the case. Uh, and then sometimes you have to address the passing of data between various um, objects, tools, platforms um, as some of the, the nuance challenge. Um, so, so for me, the, the orchestration piece as the, the additional complexity of I think thinking at a more of a higher level in terms of how you you put the things together. Not to say that you can't do orchestration with like a common kind of example is Ansible. Technically, you can do both automation and orchestration with Ansible. Um, when you start to talk about the look, some more of the more complex orchestration, uh, which some people experience when they start writing task, is how do I facilitate or handle the logic between task? and having to pass data back and forth between those, which for those that haven't done it and can wrap their heads around, around it, it becomes a, a very difficult to understand as opposed to, hey, I just need to write a script or I just need to write a single task that's almost, in essence, a one-off. Do the thing I need to do as opposed to try and stitch these seven, eight, 10,000 things together in some sort of coherent sequence. So I like, I like where you're going from a definition. So I would call Ansible a runbook. 
um, or, or a workflow. Do you distinguish between like a workflow and an orchestration? Uh, so I mean, some of it, some of it's whether you get into vendor constructs, because of course that 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 muddies the water quite a bit if you if you yeah. pull in a, a vendor construct. Um, but oftentimes I, I do associate the the construct of the idea of workflow with orchestration, um, in the sense that I have, have various sequences. Um, that I need to, to facilitate and I, I will place specific automation tasks within those, those certain sequences um, of the workflow. Then, of course, you start to get into, well, how complex does the, the capability of the workflow facilitate, whether it is just purely sequential execution, um, which one could argue isn't necessarily a workflow. Um, it's more of just a, a set of tasks. Um, executed one after the other, but at the end of the day, there does need to be some higher level construct to, to tie those together, even just from a pure sequential execution standpoint. Uh, then you start to get into the, the, the branching and the conditional um, execution uh, mechanisms. Um, and then I know for me, one of the things that I think um, people that haven't done it don't have a, a great appreciation for it until they've done it is being able to pass data between the, the various phases, stages, or, or points of execution. I strongly agree with you on the, the idea of shared, but I, well, I call that shared state rather than data passing, although I think that that's a reasonable way to think about it, um, is, is underestimated as part of the, the workflow. Uh, to me, that might be one of the differences between an automation and a workflow is the idea that you're actually passing data between. Um, oh boy. I like, I like these, the, the, the definitions that you're using. I, I sort of want to lean in from, to, from a discussion perspective, because I think orchestration typically starts when you've got you know, what you were saying, an external system or, a, or some conditional logic mm -hmm. is where, where to me, the orchestrations, where, where it starts becoming an orchestration system. Um, is that, does that sound reasonable to you as a, as a working hypothesis or a working definition? Yeah. I mean, at it's, uh, as I'm, so I'm trying to, trying to think through it because I mean, at it's, so you get into definitely some of the semantics because the argument could be, well, I could have a, a simple script that reaches out to an external system, pulls down some data or pulls down a payload and then does a thing. In theory, that's that could technically be seen as orchestration because I am hitting an external system. Um, usually it's more of the starting to talk about leveraging that external data set or external capability um, as a oftentimes a decision point right for the for the code itself um, but but I think also um, for me also starting to to think more broadly in terms of how I'm designing the system. Because in theory, I could do a lot of orchestration with, say, let's say a single bash script. I could code all of that logic there. Um, 
is it necessarily the best tool to facilitate that? And so I think that's where it starts to muddy the waters a little bit between concept and construct and capability of the platform to have native components that facilitate it in an easier fashion. Like what? Uh, so I know one of the kind of the recent ones I use, uh, well, use me for uh, Stackstorm. Who used to be owned by Extreme? Who used to be, and they also used to be owned by Broadcom or something like that. Um, Fast around a little bit. Yeah, that, that's one I, I really enjoy using. Been using a lot lately for some of my uh, automated lab updating stuff. Hmm. Um, what do you like about Stackstorm? That's just as an aside. Uh, so the, the the capabilities of the platform being uh, so their construct is um, packs. So being able to, to have components that interface with API endpoints, uh, typically, obviously, it could be some other things, whether it's SSH, WinRM, whatever it might be, mm. to basically pre, pre-packaged content uh, created, by the, created and maintained by the community to interact with systems. So like one of the examples um, I've been creating lately is a, a workflow uh, that updates my HashiCorp Vault instance in my lab environment. So what it does is it reaches out, it has several tasks in it, reaches out to, to GitHub to check if there is a, a newer release. Well, I won't say that. So first step is actually hit my vault instance, get the version from vault, pull that back, go out to GitHub, query the releases for um, most recent releases, compare the two versions. If I have, if I'm using an older version, then reach out um, and start running through the process of reaching out to the, the vault instance and upgrading it to that newer version. What I'm also doing as part of that process is interacting and interfacing with Trello. So if a new version is detected, reach out to Trello, create a card with the, the relevant information, like update vault from this version to this version, uh, add a description that includes the specific change log for that version, reach out to the instance, run the command to upgrade vault. Um, ideally, I'd have a, a snapshot or backup somewhere before that, but uh, I'm lazy uh, and just assume that it's always going to work. Uh, mm-hmm. Then what happens is uh, once that's done, once the upgrade's done, ideally I do some testing. I don't have testing yet. Reach out to Trello with the command output from the the commands. So I think like in the case of my vault instance, like yum upgrade vault or whatever. Um, could specify the specific version, but I'm not. And so give me that entire payload, the output add it as a comment to my Trello ticket, move the Trello ticket to the completed section um, and, and then done. And so in a number of those phases, there are also the, the branching logic to say, okay, well, if let's say a new version isn't available, then I, I, I have some like uh, send me a message that says, nope, all clear, everything is good, still up to date. And then in each of those, some of those subsequent steps, like if the, uh, the upgrade process fails, um, I plan on like, send me a message that said the upgrade fail, or once I end the logic to say, okay, upgrade fail, roll back to the snapshot you just took and, and everything's all good. Um, so I like the way it makes it super easy to, to define that. So it has two, two mode modalities of interaction. One is the actual YAML file that defines the, the workflow, uh, nice syntax that defines like, if I need to do next, if I need to publish a, an output variable to the, the global context. Um, but what I found myself doing lately is just using the, they have a, a, a GUI, drag and drop GUI to just create the, the, the workflow components system together. Um, right. That's a, a super nice capability 
that uh, I find just very helpful to just do what I need to do. I, it, I'm glad I, I'm glad I, I asked you to drill down on it. I mean, what you're describing to me is a service orchestrator, which I think is what of, is how I think of um, stack store, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's input uh, rule a- output um, from an event processing system. The, But to me, that's a, that's pretty far from automation, <clears throat> or at least it's far from infrastructure to me. Well, I mean, I would say it's I would say it's right in the wheelhouse because I mean, okay. um, the the automation piece or each of the each of the specific tasks. I mean, I'm running running Python scripts to to interact with things infrastructure. So I'm getting the the version of HashiCorp Vault utilizing a Python script, giving back the the infrastructure, running an SSH command to to upgrade the uh, the the vault installation on the component um i think it's for me as as i've thought about it lately in terms of a lot of my focus has been uh my side projects is infrastructure that can be upgraded and patched without humans um Mm -hmm. because we're we're never gonna i don't think we're ever going to move past the point we're at from a security standpoint until the the systems um I won't say the systems can upgrade themselves until a system can upgrade other systems because um, there's a, a bit of a distinction. So because some vendors have auto update capabilities in their products, but that's only one product or one platform. Um, and it, it's limited in scope in terms of some of the functionality. Um, and so I often wonder. We've also talked about doing upgrades in isolation or are potentially as risky as not doing upgrades. Yeah. And so the, the challenge with that became like, as I think about it, well, we got, we talk, we talk and we tout the, the capabilities of the public cloud from a bursting standpoint. And just like, it's super easy to stand things up with Terraform and all these things. And you start to almost wonder, well, like, why can't I stand up literally everything in an isolated environment that includes all of the, all of the components? Obviously there's a bit of a, a cost concern, but depending upon how long it stays up, let's say I stand up my, all of my my application infrastructure and a set of shared services that replicate what is is available to that infrastructure and reliant upon it. Um, do my test for 30, 45 minutes, an hour, or whatever it might be. After that's done, tear it down and I'm ready to go start evaluating it. Um, I think that for me that I know there's there's I think two aspects to that. Number one, it's just a lot of work. Um, and question is whether organizations see that as value. Um, and, and, and number two um, is the testing. Testing piece is still, I think, one of the, the things that still misses an industry. And it definitely seems like QA teams are, are dying off as a thing in a lot of organizations. But literally, like, how do I know whether my upgrade worked? And in the sense of, like, it didn't break things that I, I didn't even think about. Uh, strongly agree on that. Do you, mm, wow. Do you see from a test perspective as you know some of this being 
my ability to exercise tear because I mean, it's the challenge is tearing down and destroying, which I, I I'm a big fan of <laughs> is, isn't the same as being able to do like an incremental patch or a, 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 a change to a running system, right? We've been starting to distinguish um, run build operations mm-hmm. as you know, like, like you need, like we're starting to have conversations where, We've done it. We historically have been very sort of provisioning, configuration focused, like build the system, make it super easy to build the system, um, and then rely on immutability to to maintain it. So yeah. if something's not right, destroy. Mm-hmm. Which is okay for individual units, but at a cluster level, you you don't want to destroy the cluster. You want to do maintenance operations for a cluster, event triggered operations for a cluster, and so there are a lot more. Um, operational actions like day to day and operational actions that have an orchestration feel to them, like a service orchestration, like you're describing, because you're mm-hmm. orchestrating running components um, and also have a automation piece to it where the thing that you're orchestrating isn't as simple as a single command, but uh, a check and validate or, a, you know, run something, uh, look for drift detection, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and then take actions on that or alert somebody that, that there's, that there's drift. Um, but it really muddies the definition of orchestrate, um, work, you know, orchestration, workflow, event driven service, you know, service orchestrator, what I, what I would call service orchestrator. Yeah, I, I think it. I think it just changes the the functionality or the use case a little bit. So, like the the other example I was working through with uh, my auto upgrading lab was in the context of um, enterprise environments. So, potentially the idea of, and this is where I got into like, where is the the data store for organizations, uh, and, and the the disaggregation of data becoming a problem. So, like the example was, I want to to check a change window. So if the system, a system is going to upgrade the other systems, that system needs to be aware of when it is and isn't okay to perform that given operation, but also be able to look at things like, can the system schedule upcoming work? And then also start to definitely a lot more complex, start to evaluate if other operations have been scheduled to upgrade systems and can it upgrade that system given if there is a, a related system to that system that's being upgraded at that same time. So it starts to understand the dependencies of those other systems and when it can and can't upgrade a system, but then also start to get to the point of starting to factor in the human aspect of potentially doing things like looking at the calendars to determine when somebody's on PTO and if they're on PTO and part of the team that manages the system, then it's probably not, or adjacent systems, it's probably not a good idea to schedule and execute the automated upgrade during that time. Um, So for me, it all starts to become very much intermingled um, in the sense that it's data that I I think we're going to have to start to incorporate um, and aggregate for the systems to be able to, the system to be able to upgrade other systems. <sighs> yeah. So I, I, w- I would say it's just yeah, a, another yeah. evolution of, of what we've always been doing that isn't 
done in a vacuum without greater context. Because the thing I've often said is humans can only have so much context and and think about so many things in their head at once. (laughs) Uh, And and so we've got to got to start enabling the machines to run faster than oftentimes we can think at the moment. Does it, is it helpful in a case like that from a, you know, we've talked about this a lot in this group, like the test scenarios is, are, you know, is that the, the part of the key here? Cause what, one of the things that makes me nervous about some of these event driven systems is you're ultimately running events against live systems to do these actions, right? They're, they're, mm-hmm. they're, they're in situ, right? It's part of the complexity stuff that I, I see. And you can't test it well without having the system make the call to do the, do the action. Um, and so I, I start to wonder, like, how do you test and maintain one of these event systems to actually have confidence? Like, cause what you're saying to me, right. Uh, you, you start triggering an event and you're out of outside of human comprehension when that event triggers a cascade of three or four other event system, you know, event, 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 mm-hmm. um, which we need to happen to do what you're describing. It's not, it's not going to be as simple as roll out this, then roll out that it's going to have to be events and safeguards and um, fail safes trying to think of what that system looks like. Yeah, I don't, the, the thing I've been running into is I don't know that there is a, a system at the moment outside of something incredibly custom that I'm sure some of the, the cloud providers, the hyperscalers have started noodling through. Okay. Um, yeah, no, I, I definitely, the, the testing mechanism is certainly always the, the challenge with most things. So I even think of like, we start talking about like things like Active Directory controllers and SQL servers and SharePoint instances and SAP and all these really complex systems. Um, sure, it'd be ideal in most in, in every case to have some sort of test environment that that closely mimics and mirrors what we've got. And, and hopefully, I've thought of the the public cloud as that potential draw. An opportunity. So for those organizations, obviously needing to do things like DR events. Well, I mean, in theory, you'd have most of your mission critical systems available when you do a DR event. Um, and effectively, you, that DR event becomes your, your testing ground um, for some of these things. But the, certainly the concern is, is the, the cost of those resources um, worth it, but also is the, the time investment. And so that's the I think some of the, the challenge is justifying it. Um, like I've, I've done the, the auto upgrade in my lab environment and love it because it's a lab environment. Like uh, I think tonight uh, Jenkins is going to automatically upgrade because they release uh, new versions of Jenkins every Tuesday evening. Um, so it's going to auto upgrade. It's going to let me know, Hey, I finished the upgrade and, and it's, it's going to keep moving. So it's perfect. Um, but there's, there's nuance that makes it really difficult. So like as an example, Jenkins has plugins. I was familiar with Jenkins and I've got like a thousand plugins in my Jenkins instance. And so I need to figure out how to upgrade those. Number one, I'm running into the challenge of, I can't figure out the the right API endpoint without spending like 
four or five hours to upgrade those. So that's where we start to get into the, the cost of doing it. And the second becomes ensuring that the dependencies are mapped right and do all that testing. And then finally, I need to have test jobs to ensure that, hey, I upgraded a plugin. Has it broken all of my jobs now? How do I do that yeah. in the absence of, hey, I got to run all every single job in my CI environment and potentially rebuild my production software. All because you took a patch. Yeah. I don't know how to verify, you know, there's a, an asymptotic curve of confidence on this. Because some of it's you're not going to know until you actually do the work. But there should, it'd be nice to have symptom, you know, some some health check. This is like one of the nice things about Kubernetes is that they there's a standard for you can restart a pod and um, it has a health check and it can say I pass you know my at least at least it has a standard way to say yes my my I started myself up correctly. More importantly, it has a standard way of saying, uh, don't destroy my existing replica set until the new replica set is healthy. Hmm. So that gives you the continuity there of saying, like, my service will continue working as intended until the upgrade is finished. Yeah. Challenge, go ahead. Right. Challenge we got is a, a lot of the uh, the the super important systems that we've got as a large organiz large organizations have don't uh, don't fit in Kubernetes right now. Mm -hmm. So like uh, Active Directory controllers or uh, some of the the other obviously hardware doesn't fit in there, and so we've left to this scenario where, hey, I haven't patched my firewall in like three years because I don't want to bounce it. <laughs> Right. Yeah, because you don't you don't have a way to test to validate all the things that could go wrong if you if if that happened, right? And if it if something does break, then you're not you're not going to have time to build the tests first to make sure that you're aware again of what's what's going on. Yeah, so that that's why one of the things I've I've thought about is uh, working for a vendor, <laughs> and having worked for a couple of vendors and partners is the information in software releases isn't intended for systems or machines to facilitate the upgrades. Because if you think about things like release notes, um, there's no oftentimes real metadata around what versions can be upgraded. Uh, to that newest version outside of maybe a table in a web page. Um, mm -hmm. So oftentimes it's, the assumption is that a human being is going to read these things or look at these things. That is, I mean, yeah. there, there, there have been attempts to, to address that. Right? The, the, the most well-known attempt would probably is semantic versioning. We say like, okay, like, mm -hmm. which is supposed to be a contract. We, like with semantic versioning, you, you are supposed to agree that if you release a patch version, it's backwards compatible. And if there's a backwards incompatible change, it's either minor or major up, uh, version update. Uh, 
unfortunately, it is up to the vendor to to do that, which is um, hard to enforce. Yeah, like them using things like dates instead of actual version numbers. Yeah, uh, uh, that, yeah. That, that's assuming like that's assuming that even use semantic version in the first place. Yeah. Um, the the other uh, approach, which again is very vendor specific, but I think has a lot better safeguards in place is using the operator pattern uh, in, again in Kubernetes. But basically um, you, you delegate the logic of checking whether an upgrade is even possible from one version to another uh, to the controller. And, and if the controller says, no, you need to, you, you need to go through this intermediate version, then it will tell you and refuse to upgrade. At the controller level? Yeah, so it's like if you, if you update your, your, your CRD for let's say Elasticsearch to, to go from say version five to seven, but you need to upgrade from five to six and then six to seven, then the controller will, will tell you, no, you can't do that. Like, I'm, yeah, so the, the logic has been the value of that is that the vendors bake in that, that operational knowledge. Yeah. So instead of them putting it in a, a web page or release docs, they can literally just code that into it to say, if you're on this version, you have to go through these versions to get to that final version. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and even in, in, in legacy or, or quote unquote legacy, like a non-cloud non native uh, uh, software, uh, you still sometimes see that as like a, like a pre-flight check kind of thing. Where, where it's typically packaged in, in like alongside with, with installer, uh, but like it, it might check whether certain requirements are met. But again, the, 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 the problem is that there's no standardized way for this. And, and I mean, yeah. I, I would imagine standardizing would be very difficult given the, the larger variability in, in software. But having standard processes that include a possibility for a check are at least a good starting point. Yeah, absolutely. In my opinion on that. I, I, would, I would circle us all the way back to the beginning on this, which was with Terraform and orchestration. Because <laughs> um, what we just described to me does not match the the terraform patterns in case i'm missing something no i don't i don't treat terraform as an orchestrator it's a tool in an orchestration chain okay how do you know that terraform did the work it was supposed to do like you you run it how confident are you that it was it, actually two questions one is do you rerun it <laughs> and how confident are you in either case that that it it produced the results that you expected. Yeah, by default, I typically don't rerun it. Um, certainly, it should be safe, um, but depending upon the provider, you're going to get certain errors. Um, oftentimes, I would leverage um, InSpec by, uh, mm, I guess, yeah. technically, there's still Chef Progress, <laughs> whichever, whichever name you want to use, um, to validate the infrastructure. Um, 
because similar to um, configuration management tools like Ansible, Chef, Puppet, um, there's an assumption that the tool did what I wanted it to do um, as opposed to what it actually did, which might be valid and simply say, yes, I did what I was instructed to do, but not necessarily what I wanted to wanted it to do. Um, I, I definitely don't rerun the apply step, but I, I do rerun the, the plan uh, phase uh, huh. with Terraform. Uh, and, and that is to ensure that my Terraform modules and plans are either potent. How do you? Uh, how does rerunning plan help you do that? Well, Shouldn't detect a change. Yeah. So 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 when 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 I when I do Terraform apply, it, it goes down and applies. It changes. When I run Terraform plan immediately after that, I should expect zero zero changes. If if Terraform tries says I need to make a change then I have a non-important module that needs to be amended. Or a system externally that changed the resource and I need to address that particular problem. Yeah. yeah. And if one example, for example, of, uh, that is very simplistic is uh, Kubernetes manifests. Like, it, uh, like Terraform, you, you can tell it, okay, create a manifest with this spec. Now the spec might include uh, an, an empty object or, or, or list or, or empty string. Sure. Kubernetes will sometimes just remove that because it's a no op. It's empty, yeah. But then when you do Terraform plan again, it will try to re-add that empty list or object or string. Hmm. I like I like this use case. It's interesting. We typically would rerun a plan. It's all dynamically generated, and so rerunning it against the state file is, is like grow or shrink my cluster or change things. So there is a risk there. The idea of being able to put up basically an hourly sweep and say, "Hey, I, I want you to." run this, rerun all these, you know, regenerate and rerun all these plans. And if not throw an error and tell me that there's something messed up is a really interesting uh, application for it. Well, that one also flags for a uh, drift detection. I know a number of uh, the Terraform platforms also now called taco platforms uh, <laughs> do include drift detection. Yeah. Yeah, I, the drift detection I've seen for that though is actually using the like using Terraform to detect drift as opposed to um, that's the plane will do. Yeah, I mean Terraform already stores the the state that that it says it should be at, so why not take advantage of it? Makes sense. I, I was playing with some drift detection work where I was using AWS uh, CLI to scan the environment and make sure that you know any machines that I hadn't created with Terraform, I found <laughs> and flagged them, um, which is a different different type of drift, right? It's it's uh, oh something's happening in my infrastructure outside of Terraform. I like the plan review piece it's low overhead yeah you're you're doing governance environment governance which could also be done in an event driven fashion 
Uh, depending upon the resources where you might have a Lambda function that says, if the if resource is detected that doesn't include the specific tag, then it wasn't created by Terraform and then flag that. Right. I mean, that's exactly, that's exactly what we were doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, the plan also does not need to be run manually. It, it could be automated. Uh, it, it, it could be done on a recurring basis uh, as, as, again, Drift detection is say like fire off an alert if this plan does not uh, match the the stored state. Yeah, I mean for for I, I like I mean I really like this because it would be trivial for for me to add an hourly like oh yeah I'm gonna check every hour that all the clusters I've built match the Terraform plan. I mean you don't have to take any action. You're just like. Yeah, yeah, it's a problem. And then you can reapply if you if you want to resolve it. Yeah, and in a sense, it it this is the this is a part of the reconciliation pattern. Hmm. Like drift detection is the first step of that. Um, once you are comfortable with your tool and and and, and you think that you can have it automated in a non-destructive manner. Then the next step is automatic uh, drift reconciliation. Um, of course, with Terraform, this is the, the risk is much higher because we know that there are very good chances of, of being able to do a destructive change. So it's, I, I would imagine that, that we might eventually get there just not at, with the same kind of comfort level as Kubernetes. Oh, the challenge is Terraform is not really well designed to, to do that reconciliation or the infrastructure it's automating isn't well designed. <laughs> A little bit of both. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, the things that Terraform touches are, are not necessarily, like as I said, the, the design for, for, for automatic reconciliation. Like, if if you, for example, make a change to a Kubernetes cluster, like you rename it, most cloud platforms will, will have you destroy and recreate it. And, and that's obviously not something that, that you want to do. Yeah. Uh, you, I mean, there is always a, the possibility of, of perhaps to doing a limited scope automatic reconciliation. Like let's say you, you whitelist some resources that, that you know are, are safe to uh, automatically reconcile, or uh, perhaps you, you you limit the reconciliation to um, to resource updates as opposed to destruction and recreation. I have a I have a wrink I know we're only five minutes out, but I have a wrinkle for you on this. If you're throwing a GitOps workflow in front of this, I did, I mean, a GitOps, a GitOps workflow, you're sending information into that system as a sort of as a reconciler pattern. Does that change your thinking on what this would look like? And, and, and what... In what context? Like, for example, like going down the GitOps route, um, okay. there, I mean, there are now operators 
for for Kubernetes, where that that let you manage infrastructure. Like I, I forgot the name, but but mm-hmm. it's basically like running Terraform as an operator, or, yeah, or the equivalent. Stuff. Of it. Yeah. yeah. So, oh, I mean, slightly different. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're we're definitely already going that that route with, with that. Like we like if we manage the 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 configuration for this operator via GitOps, then we're there already. Question is, again, like. Do we really want to manage these resources this way, or or, or should it be on an event-based uh, pattern like we do right now with with, right. with most uh, tacos platforms? That's well. This is sort of where where my head's been going. The idea of tacos is more is is ultimately going to be driven as an event based system, a GitOps system, than it is about, the, it's not about the Terraform, it's about the orchestration. And now we're full circle because that's what Mark does started with. <laughs> Personally, I feel like Tycos is about supervision. And, and, and whenever we see supervision being used in automation, it, I implicitly think that is it is because there is insufficient trust in the system, which with, with Terraform, it, it's it's not a fault of Terraform itself. It's just a fault. It, it's it's a it's a function of again, like it being potentially destructive changes. Uh, with with Kubernetes, they, they worked really hard to get you to trust the system, and, and they did an, an excellent job. Like they got me to trust Kubernetes, the Kubernetes reconcilers, uh, and, and I was. Uh, initially very skeptical about it. Um, but Terraform is not quite there yet. Um, ultimately, when you don't have trust or when you have insufficient trust, you need the supervision. You need to be able to say, yes, this is an acceptable risk uh, or, or no, we, we, we don't want to do this. Which again, going back to to Thursday's discussion, it would come back to risk management. Right. I think some of that becomes the with the risk management piece, the the data points that we're able to to mine out of the system in an automated fashion. Because in theory, most of the decisions from an evaluation standpoint that I make as a human, I could let the system do that. Certainly there's some some more nuanced things that I might want to to have the warm and fuzzy of I made the decision as opposed to the system. Mm-hmm. And, and, and Terraform has been making inroads towards being able to be automated. Like you not you can now uh, add metadata to your resources to say uh, this should not be destroyed, mm-hmm. for example. But like uh, you don't need to add an external check to this. And anymore, once you add this, basically Terraform will say, ah, can't do this. Um, the question is more whether your, your, your entire workflow, or A, whether you take advantage of these tools, and, and, and B, again, like, what, what is the, the risk of something going wrong? With, with, with Kubernetes, it is easy to mitigate at least why not when initially adopting Kubernetes, because you can say, for example, okay, I will only deploy stateless workloads and, and, and 
keep my databases or or or, or pubs up or anything else that's stateful outside of Kubernetes. And, and then you can build trust really easily that way. With Terraform, it's it's more difficult because you are it's infrastructure. Because it's infrastructure, because the velocity of prov provisioning that infrastructure is much lower than the loss the velocity of deploying a workload as well. Bring up a pod. Like yeah. it, 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 it takes minutes, which might not seem so much, but if your website is down for minutes and you're, for example, an e-commerce website, that's a significant amount of revenue lost. Mm -hmm. if, yeah, if you did an accidental Terraform destroy on an e-commerce website, that would be uh, very, very, very troubling. Well, and depending on what you destroyed, it might take quite some time. Just to yeah. just to actually apply a, a new copy. Yeah. All right, we are we are out of time. This was I I, I like this as an alternate topic. I, I I'd like to come back to it. Um, I I I really appreciate y'all's insights. Thank you. It was definitely a good drill down. I, you know, actionable Terraform, stuff. <laughs> Terraform, Terraform to me is is a become a foundational foundational technology, but it has its challenges, and we need to talk about how to orchestrate and build build real real stuff on top of it. That's the pattern I'm seeing emerge. Cool. All right, everybody. Thank you. As always, appreciate the time. Cheers. Talk to you soon. Wow, what a great conversation. Uh, there is so much to think about. And having people who are really building and using these tools in production environments is essential to us figuring out how to do it well and what we're building on top of and around uh, the environments. Uh, and so our experience here, I hope will translate, uh, well for you and your infrastructure and DevOps journeys. Speaking of though, please join us, come to the 2030.cloud. Uh, if you visit the website at the 2030.cloud, uh, you will find our schedule, our topics and links so that you can join us and get your voice and experience as part of these conversations. They are essential to helping us build a great community. And I would love to see you there. Thank you for listening to the Cloud 2030 podcast. It is sponsored by RackN, where we are really working to build a community of people who are using and thinking about infrastructure differently, because that's what RackN does. We write software that helps put uh, operators back in control of distributed infrastructure, really thinking about how things should be run and building software that makes that possible. If this is interesting to you, uh, please try out the software. We would love to get your opinion and, and, and hear how you think this could transform infrastructure more broadly, or just keep enjoying the podcast and coming to the uh, discussions and you know laying out your thoughts and how you see the future unfolding. It's all part of building a better infrastructure operations community. Thank you.